Welcome to Navarra Live, where we have our first interview with a foreign ambassador. Later in the show, I'll be speaking to Hassem Zomlot about the Israeli storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. He's Palestine's ambassador to the UK. First, though, we have a story closer to home. A week after she was replaced as first minister, Nicola Sturgeon's husband has been arrested. Pretty dramatic sequence of events. And um, throughout tonight's show, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? Hi, Michael. I'm doing well. The sun has been shining for the past few days, and it's amazing what a little bit of sun will do for my little ego. I feel so much better um, just to have that vitamin D on my skin. <laughs> <laughs> I like that for you. People always say for their movies, so for your ego. I mean, like the Freudian sense, I'm not sure. Um, we're also going to be discussing the EHRC's latest attack on trans rights. What does that tell us about the organisation and the future of trans rights? in Britain. Um, and we'll end with a discussion about GB News, who are being investigated by Ofcom. First story. The Scottish National Party has had a rough ride recently. First, there was the shock resignation of First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, one of the most electorally successful politicians in British history. That was followed by a chaotic leadership contest that saw SNP support collapse in the polls. Hamza Youssef, Sturgeon's preferred candidate, was eventually nominated the new first minister. And now this man, the party's former chief executive, Peter Murrell, who is also Nicola Sturgeon's husband, has been arrested. These were the scenes outside the house that Murrell shares with Sturgeon. Murrell, who was in charge of fundraising for the party, was taken into custody for questioning by the police. Police Scotland have released this statement. A 58-year-old man has today, Wednesday, 5th of April 2023, been arrested as a suspect in connection with the ongoing investigation into the funding and finances of the Scottish National Party. The man is in custody and is being questioned by Police Scotland detectives. Officers are also carrying out searches at a number of addresses as part of the investigation. A report will be sent to the Crown Office. Um, and Procurator Fiscal Service. Um, they say the investigation is ongoing, so they are unable to comment further. The police have been investigating the SNP's finances since July 2021. The investigation, named Operation Branch Form, was launched after an independence activist lodged a complaint about possible fraud involving the alleged disappearance of hundreds of thousands of pounds from the party's ledgers. For context, let's go back to this speech Nicola Sturgeon gave in 2017. So let me set out the plan I intend to pursue. First, I will continue to stand up for Scotland's interests during the process of Brexit negotiations. Second, I will now take the steps necessary to make sure that Scotland will have a choice at the end of this process. A choice of whether to follow the UK to a hard Brexit or to become an independent country, able to secure a real partnership of equals with the rest of the UK and our own relationship with Europe. The Scottish Government's mandate for offering this choice is beyond doubt. So that was Nicola Sturgeon setting out her commitment following um, the Brexit referendum to a second Indie Ref referendum. And on the same day she gave that speech, Peter Murrell, her husband, set up a fundraising website. 
using the domain ref.scot, the now archived site aimed to raise a million pounds in support of Sturgeon's second referendum. The website was axed in June 2017 following Theresa May's snap general election, which saw the SNP lose nearly half its Westminster seats. But by that time, it had raised almost half a million pounds. It also raised money through a second website, yes.scot, promising to send a referendum booklet to every Scottish household. Now, that never happened. And in total, more than £600,000 was raised for this second referendum project. Now, wind forward to October 2020, when the SNP's financial accounts were made public. Then it was revealed that the party had only £97,000 in the bank and £272,000 in reserves. Questions then began to be asked about where all the money raised for a second referendum had gone. It certainly hadn't been spent on campaigning for a second referendum. Um, By the summer of 2021, several SNP officials had resigned after the party allegedly denied them access to financial information. Asked about the apparently missing funds in June that year, Sturgeon said this. I'm not concerned about the party's finances. Uh, The Uh, Finances of the SNP are independently audited. Our accounts are uh, sent to the Electoral Commission in common with other parties and, of course, published. So there's full scrutiny around that. Money hasn't gone missing. All money goes through the SNP accounts independently and fully audited. Uh, We don't hold separate accounts. We're under no legal uh, requirement to do that. Our accounts are managed on a cash flow basis. But every penny we raise to support the campaign for independence uh, will be spent on the campaign for independence. Despite Sturgeon's assurances that the party had no financial issues, just two weeks later, on the 20th of June 2021, Peter Murrell gave the SNP a loan of just over £107,000 to, quote, assist with cash flow problems. In breach of Electoral Commission rules, that loan wasn't declared for a year. Two part repayments made by the SNP to Murrell were also declared late. The SNP has refused to say whether there is any connection between the loan and the allegedly missing funds. On 6th of February this year, Sturgeon was asked about the loan at a press conference. When did you first know your husband had loaned the SNP £107,000? My husband is an individual and he will uh, take decisions about what he does with resources that belong to him uh, in line with that. And uh, I'm standing here as First Minister and that is what I'll answer for. You also talked about internal management of the SNP earlier. So you do talk about SNP matters at these events. When did you first know he'd given that money to the party? I can't recall exactly when I first knew that, but what he does with his uh, resources is a matter for him. And it him. was wholly his money, any of it yours? It, it, the resources that he lent the party to, uh, to the party were resources that belonged to him. Nine days after that press conference, Sturgeon shocked the country by suddenly announcing her resignation. So was Sturgeon's resignation connected to the police investigation into the SNP's finances? Giving his reaction to the news of Murrell's arrest, new First Minister Hamza Yousaf was asked that question. First Minister, thank you for doing the interview. What's your reaction today in the breaking news about Peter Murrell's arrest? Well, look, I obviously can't comment on a live police investigation. You would know that. But what I will say is that the SNP has fully cooperated with the investigation and it will continue to do so. And of course, on the weekend that just passed my first NEC meeting as party leader, uh, we agreed to carry out a review on governance, on transparency, uh, and of course, with some external input too. And the details of that uh, will come forth in the next few weeks. 
When did you first hear the news about the arrest and what was your reaction? I was told uh, this morning after the event um, and of course my reaction as you'd imagine uh, much like anybody involved in, in the SNP is that this is a difficult day uh, for the party but again I just reiterate and emphasise it's so important for me not to comment on a live police investigation and see, be seen to prejudice that in any way shape or form. Is this the real reason why Nicola Sturgeon resigned? No, I believe Nicola Sturgeon absolutely uh, that uh, you know she had taken the party as uh, further forward as, as she possibly uh, could. I think anybody who has particularly seen Nicola through the COVID pandemic uh, could really sympathise with just how exhausted uh, she absolutely was. Dahlia, I want your take on this. Um, you were on the show, weren't you, when we were discussing the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon? I think one of the things we were suggesting is that you know, for such a sudden move, for such an unexpected and dramatic move, you know, the, the idea that she did it because she was a bit worn out of politics didn't seem necessarily that plausible. If if the problem was that you're a little bit worn out of politics, why would you do it so suddenly? Why wouldn't you sort of announce a bit more of a uh, sort of lead in date where potentially um, your succession would be a little bit less chaotic than it actually turned out to be because it all did feel a little bit rushed? Do you think this is the... The reason? Because she was expecting that her husband was going to get arrested. This investigation has been going on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, as you've mentioned, we've been wondering about Nicola Sturgeon's sort of very sudden uh, resignation. She obviously said at the time that it was due to exhaustion, which, you know, I mean, it's fair enough. It's not completely implausible. I'm sure that this going on with her husband um, probably wasn't helping, but it was super odd um, and it didn't really chime with her explanation because, as you said, you know, why would she have um, stepped down because of exhaustion just a few months after rearing up for a second referendum or, you know, a, a de an election as a de facto second referendum, which it was a huge political undertaking. Uh, and also when she knew, probably was aware that there was no clear successor and that it would probably be pretty chaotic and essentially that she was probably holding together quite a dissonant, a surprisingly dissonant uh, party. And I think that as we've seen the kind of mudslinging between the candidates and the fact that so much division on quite important issues has been made bare within the SNP, I think it's done a lot of damage to, to that party. Um, so clearly, you know, the timing and everything in the context does make it seem like it looks a bit like she stepped down preemptively um, because she kind of knew that something like this was coming and decided it would be better for her and better for the party for her to not be first minister when, you know, it hit the fan. Um, obviously, there will be questions over the coming days. I haven't found any clear information about whether there are suspicions that Sturgeon herself might have known uh, about any alleged financial misconduct. I'm sure that that will come through in the coming days. But I think you know, it's very interesting watching this all go down from the position of London, you know, to see we, we didn't show the clip, but there's footage of, you know, four or five police cars descending on the home of, you know, a prominent politician uh, cordoning off her household to arrest her husband on allegations of some kind of financial misconduct. It really puts into perspective the absolute clown show that has been happening at Westminster, particularly over the past few years, because we have had a prime minister, Boris Johnson, who has been embroiled in multiple allegations of financial misconduct, whether it's handing off, you know, billions of pounds of contracts 
according to the High Court, illegally to private contacts, to close contacts of the Conservative Party um, through a VIP lane during the coronavirus pandemic, whether it's him asking a Tory donor to cough up £200 million, um, sorry, £200,000 for him to refurbish Downing Street, or whether it's him trying to overturn the suspension of Owen Paterson, even though he clearly breached lobbying guidelines. Not only was he never held accountable in that way, you know, but he was kicked, he was dragged kicking and screaming from being prime minister um, on even after so many scandals, including uh, allegations of forms of financial misconduct. So I wonder why there's that difference. You know, why is it that in Scotland you have, you know, Nicola Sturgeon preemptively resigning and, you know, her husband being arrested and they're being quite severe questioning of her. And yet here it took years and years and so many resignations and so much dragging in order to get rid of a prime minister that, you know, makes this look like child's play. I think that's quite interesting. I wonder if it's a difference in, you know, temperament. Is it a personal difference between Sturgeon and Johnson? Is it a difference in political culture in Scotland? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm quite interested to find out over the coming days why that contrast is so stark. Yeah, I suppose a couple of things I'd say there. So one, I, I do think probably Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson's temperaments are are quite different. You know, Boris Johnson is clearly someone who, you know, he he wanted to stay in the game, however much it was damaging his party or the country or whatever. Nicola Sturgeon seems to have a slightly different outlook when it comes to these things. I mean, I, I think potentially this is less an example of sort of some essential difference between Scotland and England and more of the fact that, you know, what... Uh, something sort of crossing the cr crossing the threshold to become criminal. And obviously this is just an allegation. I've got no idea if this guy is guilty or if there was actually sort of illegal financial mismanagement. But the allegation seems to be, you know, that money was collected to fund a second referendum campaign and essentially it was used for other purposes. Now, it's not suggested those other purposes were sort of embezzlement or that him and Nicola Sturgeon were going on sort of wild holidays with hardworking activist money. The suggestion seems to be more... Um, that instead of being sort of put away and saved to be spent on any future referendum campaign, it was spent on the day-to-day -day running of the SNP. Now they say, well, when a, when, a, when a second referendum came along, we could then, you know, spend the 600 grand there. We'd hopefully have it. This is a cash flow issue. Now, as I say, I'm not a legal expert. I don't know, um, you know, the law about this, but it doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world, right? Obviously, you should you should try and follow the law when you're managing a party's financial accounts. But I agree with you, Dahlia, that kind of what Boris Johnson did, even if it wasn't criminal, the idea that you're sort of getting money from all of these compromised people and, and, and sort of making these deals that would compromise your judgment as a prime minister in a way that I think is probably more profound than this has, I do find more morally objectionable. But as is often the case, you know, what is provable as a crime can often be quite difficult to different, sorry, to what is obviously wrong. <laughs> and I think it was often the case that what Boris Johnson was doing was obviously wrong. But it just so happens that here, there is presumably enough evidence that there's a crime committed that this person has been um, arrested. Um, yeah, I mean, it does seem pretty clear to me though that this is probably why, obviously, I can't read her mind. But it would it would seem to be a little bit too much of a coincidence if it just so happened that the month she decided she was a bit tired of being First Minister was just the month before um, her husband was arrested. I agree with you about the scenes. You know, you have a sort of evidence tent set up um, around uh, outside their house. Probably, I think the lesson from this is is 
you know, if you're a politician, don't be married to the person in charge of the party. Because it will often be the case that people in political parties end up having to be the fool guy. Because, you know, those financial mismanagement or mistakes or whatever, you know, they'll often happen on the bureaucracy side of an organization. And then if that happens, normally you can say, well, this is some bureaucrat the public haven't heard of, either we'll move them aside or there's not going to be that much heat on them because people haven't heard of them anyway. Um, you know, you see this kind of thing. I'm not sure if there are criminal investigations, but you see this, the, the same kind of thing when it comes to conservative spending. Um, you normally want to separate the political side from the organizational side. Now, having the head of the political side being married to the head of the organizational side, that to me seems like a bit of a liability. Um, so if you are a leader of a party, um, probably don't marry the general secretary or the chief executive, which I think he was. That's the, the lesson I'm taking from this. Um, let's move on to our next story. We'll see how the case develops. The Equalities and Human Rights Commission is a supposedly independent body charged with enforcing equalities law in the UK. I say supposedly because under the tenure of its current chair, the organisation seems to have gone out of its way to make one group in particular feel pretty unequal to the rest of us. That's trans people. Kishwar Faulkner was appointed to the chair of the EHRC in 2020 by the then Women's and Equalities Minister Liz Truss. Almost immediately, she was criticised for being, quote, incompetent when it comes to LGBT rights. Those were the words of a number of staff members who left the body last year over what they judged to be the body's increasing transphobia. And the HRC has now delivered advice which could seriously limit the rights of trans people in Britain. The advice is a response to a request from Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch, who wrote to the EHRC asking for advice on what she called, quote, a technical and contested area of law. Now, that area of law was how the Equalities Act defines the term sex. Now, as it stands, the law provides no specific definition, and that means that currently anyone who receives a gender recognition certificate is legally recognised as belonging to the sex on that certificate. That means they enjoy the protections afforded to that sex under the Equality Act, for example, against discrimination on the basis of their sex. In her reply to Badenoch, however, Faulkner has recommended that the Equality Act be changed. So writing in the Times, Faulkner said this, in light of the current lack of a definition of sex at EHRC, we have taken the position that a trans woman with a GRC, for example, is in principle entitled to access women's spaces such as a hospital ward, a woman's changing room, and so on. These services can sometimes be restricted to biological women, but that requires explicit additional steps. So that's the current status quo position. She goes on, though, to say this. We know this is contested. Some people think this cannot be the meaning of woman in the Equality Act. Having considered this in detail, we agree. There is ambiguity in the legislation. As a result, there is now widespread confusion about what the Act means, both for trans people who have GRCs and for those who do not, as well as for women and men. Businesses and organisations such as hospitals, schools, shops and workplaces are all impacted by the ambiguity and many struggle to understand how they can legally provide the kinds of services they wish to operate. It is against this background that we have recommended to the government that it considers adopting a biological definition of sex in the Equality Act. If the government follows this recommendation, then trans people would be legally regarded as having the sex they were assigned at birth, whether or not they've been granted a gender recognition certificate. Helen Belcher is chair of Trans Actual, an organisation combating misinformation about trans people. She told Pink News this, 
our challenge to the increasingly misnamed EHRC and Kami Badenoch is, why is it necessary now to try to redefine women to exclude trans women and include trans men when there is no evidence of problems actually caused by the understanding that has existed for decades? By insinuating in its previous advice that organisations should exclude trans people from single-sex services and spaces, and now proposing that Parliament actively considers effectively removing trans people from sex-based protections under the Equality Act, the EHRC continues demonstrating its inability to fight for human rights for everybody. Trans people no longer seem to be people in their eyes. Our pains and struggles are seemingly irrelevant. Um, So strong opposition there. But how likely is the law to change? The Guardian reports this. Government sources said they were looking carefully at the EHRC response, warning the legislation was complicated, but Badenoch is being backed by Downing Street to continue looking at the possibility of a change. So you've got the Conservative Party being quite keen to make a change, the EHRC seeming to back them up. Of course, during the leadership campaign, Rishi Sunak himself pledged to change the Equality Act, calling it, quote, a Trojan horse that has allowed every kind of woke nonsense to permeate public life. Now, there were some people who were hoping um, that Rishi Sunak was sort of speaking like this in the leadership race purely to try and win. Um, It turns out he he, he appears to be legislating in this manner as well. Um, Dahlia, what's your response to this? I mean, it's a completely bizarre, um, pretty unworkable concept. Uh, If you are going to essentially say um, that that trans people cannot exist in the gender that they are, then what you're essentially talking about is erasing trans people from like public life Um, because it's just completely unworkable in many ways. But for a lot of reasons, I don't even think that they particularly care whether this is workable in reality because this is about trying to gain discursive and political power for a very sinister group of actors. I mean, first of all, it's important to say that any organization uh, that joins the chorus of voices that are attempting to squeeze trans people out of public life to stigmatize and uh, delegitimize a minority, uh, they don't they have no credibility as an equality organization. So I think that that is that that is the first point to make here. I think we should be incredibly concerned about who will be considering this um, a victory today, whether or not the law is actually changed. We need to look at who is actually winning from these kinds of interventions. Cis people aren't winning because, you know, they're they're not gaining anything from this. You don't get anything from the demonization of trans people. It doesn't put money into your public services. It doesn't pay your rent. It doesn't put food on your table. If anything, it actually makes the culture significantly worse for you because once you have far right actors and you have you know the state believing that they should have the authority to discipline your gender to tell you what it means to be a man or to be a woman and to legislate on that basis and to bully on that basis that is an incredibly sinister thing for everyone you know whether you are cis or trans um you know, and I think we're seeing kind of the the, the knock-on effects of that. You know, in the US, we're seeing a severe attack on um, reproductive rights. We're seeing in the cultural sphere um, increased ideas around things like trad wives and returning to traditional gender roles. These are all part of the same ecosystem around this idea of disciplining gender and disciplining what it means to be a man and a woman. No one wins from that. 
Trans people, obviously not winning from this discussion or from these interventions. They are having to live in a society where the state and the media is torturing them uh, and constantly um, normalizing this idea that this group of people should be under endless scrutiny and endless surveillance and harassed in public and erased and, and, and shifted out of public life. The group of people that are winning, however, is this small but increasing ecosystem of far-right actors, far-right organizations, and their apologists who are using this issue as a hook in which to enter the political landscape. We're seeing them turning up at drag um, drag story hours um, in order to try and normalize their presence on the street. We're seeing them trying to use this issue, which, you know, the far right always uses groups of people that they think no one cares about or that they think people are broadly indifferent about. And they are using that in order to try and force their way into public and political landscape and to make influence in state institutions. And so they will be considering this, whether or not it becomes law, they will be considering this a huge victory. And I think we should all be incredibly concerned whether even if this doesn't become law, the shift that this represents and the emboldening of groups of people that are trying to make everyone's life, if unless you are, you know, a white cisgendered middle class man, to make everyone's life miserable, um, that it should be incredibly concerning for us. And the fact that they always use communities that they think no one cares about or they think people are indifferent about. We need to prove them wrong if we have any hope of curbing the growing street and state and political presence of the far right in this country. We, even if this doesn't become law, we shouldn't rest on our laurels when it comes to this particular issue. For the third year in a row, Israeli police have raided Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque during the holy month of Ramadan. Muslims regard the mosque as the third holiest site in Islam after Mecca and Medina. These are scenes from the raid which have gone viral on social media. Now those scenes are just so shocking. As I say, the third holiest site in in Islam, and you've got police hitting people with batons. You know, people in there praying. And I mean, it looked like they were hitting them with guns as well, like completely shocking footage. I mean, it should have shocked everyone who viewed it. Um, let's see what the Israeli police have said, though. This is their excuse, their explanation of the events. Several law-breaking youths and masked agitators fortified the mosque in order to disrupt public order and desecrate the mosque. After many and prolonged attempts to get them out by talking to no avail, police forces were forced to enter the compound in order to get them out with the intentions to allow the dawn prayer and to prevent a violent disturbance. When the police entered, stones were thrown at them and fireworks were fired from inside the mosque by a large group of agitators. That's the Israeli police saying, all we were trying to do was make sure the dawn prayer could go ahead. Um, so they're putting themselves forward as very benevolent there. Um, well, earlier today, I spoke to Hassam Zomlot, the Palestinian UK ambassador, and I asked him about the media of the raids on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I started our discussion um, by asking him to respond to that statement from Israel's police. Uh, it's an explanation we have always heard from the Israeli side, whitewashing their crimes. The uh, evidence is very clear. Uh, everything was taken by videos. The world has seen what happened. Those are worshippers. Ramadan is a very special month of purity, prayer, uh, devotion to God. And for 
hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. It's the opportunity to actually serve God and their people. And there is the i'tikaf, which happens in mosques all over Palestine and in the Arab and Muslim world, when people spend their evening in mosque until the dawn prayer, particularly in the second half of the holy month of uh, Ramadan. Israel has turned such uh, a commitment to God and religion also an act of oppression by the Israeli authorities uh, uh, and an act of resistance by the Palestinian people. The right to worship is sacred. And we don't even need to discuss very key principles here. The first principle is that, you know, uh, that the sanctuary of uh, holy sites is, 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 is a universal value to respect uh, religious uh, sites, that Al-Aqsa is a mosque and a mosque is a place of worship for Muslims, that Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, is an occupied city, that Israel as an occupying power has the absolute full responsibility to protect and respect the rights of people to worship and uh, the status quo uh, of Jerusalem. But having done all that, it tells you all you need to know about the current situation. This is, this is chronic provocation after provocation, and now with Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, and on the top of them, Benjamin Netanyahu, they are going into the religious confrontation. Ben-Gvir only a couple of days ago called for his followers and the Jewish people to ascend to Al-Aqsa Mosque. We're going into the religious confrontation, way more dangerous than political and legal conflict. And also it's a provocation to export the crisis that they have created in Israel itself uh, among their own people. You know. Um, you see hundreds of thousands of Israeli people in the streets in the last few weeks protesting their own government, the uh, autocracy, the authoritarian uh, uh, regime they are inflicting. And you know, they haven't made any link with the occupied territories, but in fact, the occupied territories, because these, these ministers are settlers, most of them live in illegal settlements. It's the occupied territory and the, the settler movement, the Bengvir and the Smotrich are now turning against their own people. Uh, and therefore, the situation is rather very acute and extremely dangerous. It was the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 2021 that set off the chain of events that led to a full-scale war, um, essentially. Airstrikes in Gaza killed 256 people, 15 Israelis died. Is there a possibility that this raid today will lead to a similar escalation. We have seen enough violence inflicted both by the Israeli occupying army and the settlers. Settler terrorism in every sense. I'm sure you followed what happened in the occupied West Bank over the last few days and weeks, including the Hawara and the pogrom that happened in Hawara. I'm sure you've seen that the Israeli army has given them complete cover and protection. And the Israeli political class have given them such a, a, a support uh, uh, Bingvir, one of the senior ministers, uh, and Smotrich comes out in public and says that Suhuwara uh, should be erased off earth. Later, he tried to retract uh, without really convincing anyone. So now you have uh, the government of Israel, the army of Israel, and the settlers literally wreaking havoc in the occupied West Bank. And your question is the is the right question. While attention is being put on the brutality of the Israeli occupation against worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque last night. And it is brutal, it is barbaric, it is illegal, it's a war crime, and it must stop immediately and accountability for what happened for all those involved in such atrocities. But things have been happening on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. Only for the last three months, four, 94 Palestinians were killed by the Israeli occupation forces and the settler 
militias in the occupying uh, uh, territories. 17 of them are children, uh, one woman, uh, uh, Michael. And therefore, uh, uh, sometimes media focus on big flashpoints, but does not really bring the story to a situation whereby things are boiling, things in the occupied territories are at a boiling point right now. And what you have seen in Aqsa Mosque might be a spark or the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Your role as Palestinian ambassador to the UK, in part it's to talk about the situation in Palestine, to sort of reveal the reality of what is going on. It's also a political leadership role. And I suppose, you know, most of our viewers will, most of our viewers, I think, will recognize that the Palestinian people are being severely oppressed by the Israelis. Is there political leadership you can offer though? Is there a strategy to change the situation? What can you offer to the Palestinian people to say, yes, we do have some route out of this beyond saying how terrible it is? Well, the first and foremost important uh, route for us is our people and, and you see them everywhere. You saw them in Jerusalem uh, uh, last night. Um, you, you see them in Jenin and in Khalil and Hebron. You see them in Nablus, you see them in Gaza. Uh, you see them uh, uh, everywhere. You see them in refugee camps all over, scattered in neighboring countries. And after uh, almost 105 years, and I mentioned that date because that was the Belfort Declaration, the, the Britain, Great Britain, promising the establishment of, uh, of a national home for the Jews in Palestine and uh, committing to respect the rights, the religious and civil rights of the minorities. We, the original native of the of the land for millennia were turned into minorities have the right only to pray and you know what happened in london only last week was just an extension of that uh, michael if you go back to that agreement with israel we are not mentioned in light of political and national rights we are only mentioned but i suppose i suppose in terms of strategy what i mean is yes your, your people is your strength protests here and there but you have got a situation where Israel is now normalizing relationships with lots of Arab countries. Yeah. The Palestinian people seem divided when it comes to political leadership. Is there any hope? Do you have hope that sort of the situation might improve in the coming years? And, and how would that happen? We do have hope. The, the Palestinian uh, leadership and the Palestinian national institutions uh, have a very clear political program that is in line with international resolutions and international law. The first is the struggle to end Israel's occupation that began in 1967. The wider community, international community, called that the two-state solution. People confuse that. They think the two-state solution is a Palestinian demand. No, it's not. The two-state solution was a Palestinian concession to the international community. In the 80s, we have taken a decision to actually announce a state of Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza with East Jerusalem as its capital uh, in a way to ally ourselves during Yasser Arafat time, the founder of our movement, of our movement, movement and the father of our nation, uh, to actually ally ourselves with international law, thinking strategically that the international community will deliver uh, that program that, with us, together with our people and struggle, and it was the first intifada um, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, the first main point is to end the occupation and to fulfill the right of self-determination for the Palestinian people. In you see what I mean? This is, a, this is an aim and an objective, and I suppose, is what would be the route to achieving, what, what pressure can Israel be put under? Because at the moment, they do seem like they can basically get away with anything. Yes, I mean, right. are there new alliances that you could form? What's the situation with China, say? Is there, is there some sort of route in the future that people can say, oh, there is some possible hope that the Palestinians will achieve liberation. We have very good, good relations with China. We have good relations with everybody. Uh, and we are 
building many alliances, but we are relying more on the people rather than the governments, including here in the UK. And we are investing so heavily in creating a public opinion and a grassroots and a base that does exactly what they did for South Africa and towards the South African struggle, the anti-apartheid movement. And by the way, Michael, you may remember that it emanated from London. This was the, the capital, the headquarters of the anti-apartheid movement. And I, everywhere I go in the UK, I see the beginning of that movement vis-a-vis -vis Palestine. Governments have their calculations. And this is our main investment in the, in the people of the world, in the people of the UK and everywhere. And I tell you, in there, all opinion polls suggest, including in America only very recently, if you follow all the opinion polls there, the, there is a conversion in the public opinion towards the rights of the Palestinians in the US, in Europe, and everywhere else. Uh, uh, now, we have a strategy, and our strategy is to create consequences for the state of Israel. These consequences we've decided, as in the leadership, to be peaceful and legal. That's why we decided to join the United Nations, and we got a state status in the UN. And then from there, we went to the International Criminal Court. The whole idea is to actually bring those who have perpetuated crimes against our people to justice. In this incident, it has to be international justice because Israel and the Israeli court is completely implicit and complicit in the occupation and the atrocities. Uh, we also have just asked at the end of last year for an advisory opinion of the international court of justice. Every year we table many resolutions designed for accountability in the United Nations Human Rights Council, including last week. The, the majority of the world vote for us in all these resolutions, but guess key countries like the US or the UK, the UK voted against our main resolutions last week in the UN Human Rights Council and abstained on other under the pretext that all these resolutions single Israel out, as if the issue is with the mechanism, not with the heart of the law and the commitment of the, of the UK towards international law. So there is a strategy in the international sense to bring about accountability, to attach course to all these illegalities, to leverage our status in, in the international system, to actually get the, all these courts and get all these mechanisms, something similar to what happened in South Africa. But some governments are so resisting our attempts, including the UK government, the ICJ, they just threatened that it's inappropriate. The ICC, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson wrote a public letter that was published that he opposes the Palestinian people and leadership to go and take Israel to the ICC. And guess why he said in that letter they oppose? Because Israel is a friend and an ally. You know the meaning of that. The meaning of that, Michael, is that international law only applies to foes and enemies. It does not apply to friends. So this is why you have many of us all over the world to engage the people, the civil society, then create a movement. And I am certain, absolutely certain, that this is what we're going to do in the future. This is the best investment, the most sustainable, the most assuring. In South Africa, during the apartheid regime, the governments were lagging behind. It was too late in the game when the Thatcher government and the Reagan administration came. It was the people. So, yes, if you ask me, uh, have faith in the people everywhere. And I suppose, again, in that role of political leadership, does it also involve a position on what people shouldn't be doing? And I suppose here there is talk of a third intifada. Of course, especially the second intifada was, was fairly violent. Would the PLO's position be to say to people, no, keep this peaceful? Or do you celebrate a diversity of tactics when it comes to to resistance in Palestine, what's the what's the yeah, position? There? We have been peaceful all along since the beginning of this, and every act the Palestinians have taken over the years is an act of self-defense. 
And uh, now our, our overall strategy, and you know, in the West, there is a lot of media focus on the react rather than the act. This has been happening over tens of years. So uh, the, the reaction would be what Palestinians did, uh, <laughs> you know, omitting uh, the real act that has led us where, uh, where we are. But the PLO position is very clear. Uh, we are engaged uh, internally on the ground with what we call popular resistance. Popular resistance is our ability to protect ourselves, our properties, our lands, our sacred places. Popular resistance is the demonstrations that happen on a daily and weekly and basis. By any, by any means necessary. Yeah, uh, uh, demonstrations. We, 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 we are occupied. We are not armed by and large. Uh, we are facing one of the strongest armies on earth and nuclear power. And therefore, it is the moral high ground and our numbers and masses and our persistence and perseverance is what matters the most for us. And uh, we realize that engaging Israel in, the, in that arena is going to be advantageous to them given the, the sheer power and the, the, the lack of accountability in the international arena so far. So uh, the popular resistance is mass movement like the first intifada and it's happening and it's taking shape and expanding. And Jerusalem is one of the forms when people go in their tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to pray, it's a form of resistance also. Uh, but also we want to see uh, a parallel track in the international arena to finally uh, make sure that illegalities are marked, that anybody who commits crimes in Palestine would not be able to take a flight, that settlers will be banned from arriving to the UK and other main, main countries in the future, that the settlement products are being banned every, uh, everywhere, that the feasibility of the illegality, the economic feasibility is being undermined. And this process is slow, it's slow because of the calculation of politician. The, 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 what, how can I describe it for you? There is, there, there is cowardice when it comes to main international issues, unfortunately. Politicians calculate. But the trajectory of things are definitely going in that direction. And there is no other strategy that we can, we can see appropriate at this point in time other than the mass movement in Palestine coupled with a mass movement outside, covered by international law and international mechanisms that bring all the situation to some sort of accountability and some sort of a change of the cost benefit and power relations. And can we talk about the UK specifically? I mean, you've expressed some optimism there. You think things are going in the right direction. I mean, if you look the at- The people. If you, so the people, not necessarily the governments. I mean, here though, we did have a Labour Party which was led by someone who had been part of the pro-Palestine movement. Um, he failed. I mean, people have their different analyses of, of why um, that was. Now in charge of the Labour Party is Keir Starmer. Now we've gone from someone who was a pretty uncompromising ally of the Palestinian people to someone who is now saying that it would be wrong and inappropriate to call Israel apartheid. We have MPs who have to stand up in Parliament and apologise for calling Israel apartheid because otherwise they're threatened with losing the whip. Keir Starmer has also said he's opposed to, to boycott, divest and, and sanction. So one strategy for holding Israel to account. I mean, are, are you disappointed at the trajectory of the UK Labour Party? Let me talk first about the Labour Party before I, I talk about the leader of the party. And, um, you know, over the years, um, the Labour Party has a very strong base and its base tilts always towards fairness, justice, international law. That's absolute. And you will find the base of Labour, the, the, the constituents of Labour, uh, the CLPs of Labour, the, the trade unions of Labour, the Labour movement always, always siding with uh, fair play, with equal application of international law, with our universal values, 
that you make no mistake about. And having said that, Palestine has such support among the labor, the heart of the labor uh, movement. Sir Keir knows this, every labor leader knows this. It was Ed Miliband that introduced the immediate recognition of the state of Palestine. And it was actually during Keir Starmer that the, the base has pushed for a ban of the settlement product and the deliberations of the conferences. So the, the commitment of the various leaderships and the base and the successive conferences or the annual conferences of the party have brought the party into a policy vis-a-vis -vis Palestine that is balanced, that respects international law, that wants and seeks to recognize the state of Palestine immediately. And immediate here is more relevant than the recognition because if you don't do it in the first day, you wouldn't do it. Uh, uh, and the banning of settlement products, the marking of all illegalities, helping us in the international uh, arena, especially the ICC and the ICJ, unlike the current situation with the government where they are blocking us. Uh, uh, now, the real test is coming uh, uh, in the coming few days and weeks as the uh, Labour Manifesto is being drafted. And I am scheduled to meet the leader of the Labour Party in the coming couple of weeks. So please ask me that question after I have met Sir Keir Starmer soon. So should I take it that at the moment you're remaining open-minded despite the the noises which have been made about, for example, apartheid and, and BDS? I mean, I, I presume you, you, you wholeheartedly disagree with Keir Starmer suggesting it would be wrong to call Israel apartheid. I think uh, Keir Starmer, as a as a as a, a lawyer of international law and uh, somebody who spent much of his life in the, understands that uh, law cannot be subdivided. You cannot pick and choose. It's not cherry picking here. And I, I very much hope we will all arise uh, to the moment of really, really being principled, ethical, and. Uh, uh, seeing Palestine not only as Palestine, but as a litmus test of who we are altogether. And I hope none of us will fail the very values of the people, including the British, uh, the British public and the Labour voters. And I hope the Labour leadership uh, would not just want to focus on one-sided conversation. They would open up and see millions of people in the UK, millions upon millions, uh, see things for what they are. They see the truth. Thanks to you, by the way, Mike. Thanks to people like you, many platforms like you. We are no longer at the time when only a couple of platforms decide what we know and how we know them and when we know them. Now we have many influencers like you who are feeding the people the reality and the truth. And therefore, uh, I think as much as we are challenged, every politician is challenged to really side with the truth, side with the justice, side with international law. Britain uh, uh, is renowned for the rule of law. That's, that's the, the heart of this country, the rule of law. Can you imagine if the rule of, of law was not applied equally on everybody, if it, it applied according to your height or width or color or creed or race, it would be disastrous. So we are really hoping that the labor leadership is going to live up to the expectations of its own base and the expectation of many, even beyond this country. Hassam Zomlot, thank you so much for speaking to us at Navarra Media. That was Hassam Zomlot speaking to me earlier today. Let's go straight to our final story for the evening. GB News is being investigated by Ofcom for the second time this year. The first time it was for spreading misinformation, with Ofcom finding the channel guilty of, quote, a materially misleading interpretation of official data. That was in relation to COVID vaccines. 
But Ofcom is now investigating whether the channel has broken impartiality rules. According to the regulator, politicians are not allowed to be newsreaders, interviewers, or reporters in news programs unless, quote, exceptionally, it is editorially justified. Politicians are, however, allowed to host current affairs shows. Now, that's a pretty blurry line, and Ofcom wants to get to the bottom of it. They're investigating 39 complaints about a show hosted by Esther McVeigh and her husband, Philip Davies. They're both Tory MPs. Now, in the show, um, they have been known to interview Tory MPs. The complaints have been in particular in regard to an interview with the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Now, the BBC report this. Whether Saturday morning with Esther and Philip qualifies as a news or current affairs programme and whether a broad enough range of opinions was included is likely to be central to Ofcom's eventual ruling. Hunt appeared on the show last month to discuss his upcoming budget. It wasn't the toughest of interviews, but the questions weren't quite as easy as this. Earlier on today, I was very fortunate to be joined by Immigration Minister, Mr Robert Jenrick. Here's our conversation. Robert, thank you so much for coming in to speak to me um, about the small boats issue. The worry everybody has, put by the Prime Minister, Prime Minister's questions today, is that lefty lawyers will stop it. How can we be sure that that won't happen? So that was a, a very comradely question. That, that was a little bit like, you know how they have in PMQs where someone from a political party, um, or from, from the Prime Minister's party, sorry, sort of asked to stand up and ask a question which gives the Prime Minister an opportunity to say what they wanted to say anyway. That looked a little bit like a planted question, but the, the format was not PMQs in Parliament. It was host and guest, when actually they were colleagues from the same party. And of course, we can also look forward to Lee Anderson joining the GB News fold soon. So again, difficult questions for Conservative MPs who will have the deputy chair of the Conservative Party asking them questions. Um, all a little bit odd. Dahlia, what do you make of this um, trend of Tory MPs interviewing Tory MPs? I mean, we've talked about it on other shows where you get former Labour MPs interviewing current Labour MPs, always from the centrist wing. You'll never see a Corbynite interview a Corbynite on, on a mainstream programme. But um, yeah, what do you make of this? When I was watching this, um, uh, the clips that you showed, it reminded me of something I'd seen a few days ago, uh, where Nana Okua, who is one of the GB News presenters, uh, was hosting this debate on whether or not Ofcom should regulate Netflix because she was so disturbed by the lie that was told in the Meghan and Harry documentary that Britain was racist, that she was like, we need Ofcom to like regulate this so that they stop lying um, and saying that Britain is racist, which is obviously hilarious because, you know, karma and all the like, and, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, but I mean, obviously, look, like, I don't need Ofcom to tell me that GB News is a deeply unserious organization. I've said it before. Uh, GB News is constantly in this internal tussle where it really wants to be taken seriously. Um, but it's the reason it exists is to be completely batshit. And so it's constantly struggling between those two things. And one way that they try to gain legitimacy is by, in their view, having, you know, sitting MPs uh, interviewing one another. That to them gives them an air of legitimacy. But obviously it makes them a deeply unserious journalistic outfit. Um, I think, you know, with that being said, though, I'm almost less disturbed by... Um, this kind of phenomenon of Tory MPs uh, presenting news channels. I'm almost less disturbed by that because at least the political bias is on the table. Like at least it's not claiming to be 
respectful and serious um, when it's not. I'm, I feel like something that's much more insidious or is at least as insidious is the fact that our mainstream media outlets are stacked to the rim with people who have very strongly held political cleavings and very strongly held allegiances to particular political ideologies and even sometimes political parties. And yet, and, and, and there's a high concentration of people with the same kind of political leanings in the ranks of the media. And yet that is never scrutinized or it's never transparent or it's never held, the record is never held um, up for scrutiny. Uh, and instead they're portrayed as being, you know, impartial and, and, and neutral, even though that's not possible within the particular conditions that these media um, organizations are operating in. And the editorial decisions that these presenters and journalists make is very much influenced by their political networks and their ideological frameworks. So I'm almost like, have it all on the table, not, although obviously it is still deeply corrosive to our um, political culture, but I think it's important to understand that this kind of cleaving and political bias does also exist in so-called independent uh, journalism. It's just less on the surface. It's less visible um, than with an outfit like GB News, which is just too clownish and too chaotic to uh, be strategic about how it covers its its tracks. You know, I have to say, I, I kind of agree with you on this one. And, you know, obviously we've, we've talked to, there's sort of two areas where Ofcom have been having a go at GB News. Now, one of them is on sort of accuracy and, and misleading data. And I'm really pleased, you know, we have an organization that can punish a TV show if they're, you know, putting out disinformation about COVID vaccines. You know, I hope they, I would like them to also do it about climate change, for example. And I think that is a difference between the media here and the media in the US. You know, so so in the US, Fox News seems to be able to say whatever it wants about COVID vaccines, and it will get away with it. So, so I am glad there is some sort of body to say if you're sort of talking complete nonsense, um, about public health issues, there are going to be some consequences. Great. When it comes to the sort of balance, I, I, I do think that I agree with you. Like, you know, having a Tory interview a Tory, what's the difference between having that and having, uh, you know, a journalist who we know is completely pro-establishment in all of their biases, but don't have it on the table. And I think we saw this with Jeremy Corbyn, right? You know, the whole of the mainstream media was essentially kind of new Labour centrist, David Cameronite centrist, you know, in terms of the Conservative Party. Um, and he was treated completely unfairly. Now, I would have preferred it if they had just put their cards on the table and said, I am a centrist journalist. And so I'm not going to deal with, with Jeremy Corbyn fairly. But no, they all posed as sort of really objective, professional journalists. And those biases, which were kind of just as obvious to you or I, were not out on the table. So I think this idea of the, you know, we're seeing now from sort of the liberal centrist press to sort of say, oh, GB News, this is outrageous. They're degrading journalism because you've got a conservative interviewing a conservative. We've seen centrist interview centrists for, for decades. And we always say this, this is why Keir Starmer gets an inc incredibly easy ride with the media, whereas Jeremy Corbyn got an incredibly difficult ride with the media because Keir Starmer is allied with these people. He's a pro-establishment politician. And most of the British mainstream media is pro-establishment. It's not necessarily pro-Labour or pro-Tory. It's pro-establishment. So once they speak to someone outside of that, that's when it gets pretty difficult. So I think there were some sort of justified um, complaints from the Brexit side, because that was outside sort of the pro-establishment bias of the media. And I think you know, more vicious when it came to Jeremy Corbyn because he was more challenging to establishment vested interests than Brexit ever was. They could deal with Brexit. They couldn't deal with Corbyn. Dahlia, actually very quickly from, if we, this is a thought experiment for you. Now say if we were to try and get 
a TV station. I would like a TV station. You know, lots of people sort of watch GB News passively. Um, we presumably, as a you know, as a, as a as a deal of getting that channel, would have to start inviting more right wingers on. Now, would you be comfortable with that? I think that what we do, I think that is really different to other organisations, and why I think that actually that I would, I think that it would be make sense in some instances is that we don't say that like we're neutral. What we say is that we are, what we try to do is be transparent, whether it's, you know, from our, you know, our, how, how we're funded to, you know, um, our political positions to the people that make up our organization. We try to be rigorous. And I also think that we're pluralist, right? So there's not a, it doesn't feel like there is an establishment line um, within Navarra. And that is something that other TV shows fail to do. And so I think in that context, it would be, um, it would be incredibly, it would be like fruitful. But I would also say that in, if we did have a TV show or a TV channel or station, I would be much more interested. I would want to put much more resources towards getting the perspectives of people who are rarely taken seriously um, by the mainstream media. So like, for example, the fact that we have like Polly on our team, who's our industrial um, reporter, you know, someone who maintains connections with the unions, who has, who reports on labor struggles outside of big flashy strikes. Um, but then when there are strikes has all the kind of contextual information that really specialist reporting, that kind of elevating of those perspectives that are so often sidelined by the mainstream media, which isn't typically the right wing perspective. I think I would want to put more resources into making sure that we're doing a lot of that um, than, you know, just trying to focus on, you know, owning right wingers on our platform. If that makes sense. Gary McQuiggan, who is our head of video, has uh, commented um, in the live stream. Full disclosure, <laughs> we definitely can't afford a channel. Um, so for now, this will remain <laughs> academic. If you would like us um, to develop into the type of organization which could buy a channel like GB News has, obviously they had massive venture capital um, backing up their organization so they could buy the the, the space on the, the channel spectrum. I don't even know how we talk about these things. Um, they did it. We'd love to do it, but we'll need millions of quid i imagine to get a channel um so to help us get there as i say this is a, this is a distant this is a distant dream of mine um please go to navaramedia.com forward slash support um for now thank you dahlia for joining me this evening thanks for having me michael that was also an amazing interview i think it was really well done so kudos to you for sorting that out <laughs> yeah, it was really great um to get him on we have often shown you clips of um, of hassam's omelette sort of having a go at mainstream anchors who are trying to both sides things and constantly sort of put the put the pressure on the occupied as opposed to the occupier. I, was, I, I managed to get out of that without, I think, getting owned by him, although there were still some, some challenging questions. Um, thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.